On today's show, Albuquerque Journal staff writer Jeff Grammer gives his opinion of the ESPN documentary The Last Dance and answers the question of how college sports will look come the fall. He also recaps the recent history of the men's basketball team at the University of New Mexico. Email us at triple double podcast at gmail.com to interact with the show and find us on Facebook at triple double podcast. We are back on a Sunday afternoon. I am Justin Goodrum along with Matt Thomas. What's up, man? What's up? What's up? If our audio sounds a little different, it's because we are actually in the same room for the first time since we brought this podcast back. How are you doing, man? Doing pretty well, man. Um, as always, um, you can just get in touch with the show as we discussed um, in the intro through social media. And also we have a special guest, um, Jeff Grammer of the Albuquerque Journal from Albuquerque, New Mexico, a great um, staff writer covering sports, um, has broken down the Lobos for years. So stay tuned at the end of the show to get his expert analysis on um, what's going on with collegiate athletics, specifically in New Mexico. Of course, he has thoughts on the last dance and some other um, insightful stuff. I know you enjoyed the interview a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff was great. And we again, thank him for for coming on and you guys are going to want to stay tuned uh, to listen to that interview. So let's hop into it, man. And usually we usually discuss um, just sports right off the bat in terms of what's going on within the NBA. But um, as we all know, within the past couple of days, the United States, even the world has been going through um, really a crisis with all the protests um, just concerning kind of global events, um, specifically surrounding uh, George Floyd's death. Um um, murder um, by yeah. a police officer in Minneapolis. And we've seen many NBA players, um, Steven Jackson, who is a friend of George Floyd, actually, looks just like him. Um, Jalen Brown, Malcolm Brogdon, um, among some others, getting involved. We've seen countless NBA players on Twitter um, expressing their thoughts on this. Um, so I just want to ask you, Matt, um, what are your thoughts on it? And specifically, do you believe sports can really make a difference? Um, I want to kind of keep this focus more on the NBA specifically just because we've seen NBA players reach out on Twitter um, discussing this event. Can sports really do anything? Well, it's tough to answer because it's – let's not sugarcoat it. It's been a horrific week, and it's it's been a, a very – sad turn of events um, over the past few days, regardless of, of how you feel. I think we're united in, in mourning um, the death of, of George Floyd, the murder, as, as you mentioned, which it was. Um, I do think that sports can help us heal. I do think it can, it can help us reconnect and reestablish the human connection that we share, and I do think that is important. Uh, and I do think the NBA players, uh, more than in any other league, uh, are largely involved in, in human rights issues, in speaking how they, they feel, in, in protesting in this case as they see fit. Um, and so I think there has been, in spite of the maybe darkness, uh, certainly of, of the last week, I do think there have been great efforts in the NBA to connect communities that feel torn and broken right now. And and I do certainly applaud that and, and those peaceful efforts to do that. Um, what what do you feel in, in terms of all this these events uh, this week and how difficult, how heart-wrenching and gut-wrenching that's been? Um, I mean, do you feel like these NBA players and, and maybe more broadly sports has had any of this healing effect? I mean, it's it's difficult since we aren't we don't have like games to offer temporary distraction or relief, so to speak. But I don't. What are your thoughts on all this, Justin? Yeah, um, it's it's been tough. I think with athletes in particular getting out into the community protesting i've seen some athletes even today cleaning up graffiti i think that's going to be the more effective way just saying your piece on twitter i don't think it's good enough anymore mm. um it's certainly appreciated but especially athletes that have a voice being there on the ground and peacefully protesting is the most effective measure and bringing awareness and participating in what's been happening 
Um, I think no longer just putting on a shirt, putting on an armband, just bringing that awareness. People know what's going on. I mean, people aren't stupid. We we know what's happening. We see it all the time. Just trying to, you know, wear some T-shirt, I don't think cuts it anymore, unfortunately, um, because these things just keep happening. And I think also legislation um, being involved in certain things in terms of actually making policy changes, that's going to be the most effective way of fighting systemic racism as opposed to just, you know, tweeting out things here or there from your mansion. Um, I think more action needs to be done. So, I mean, as, as a black person, I hate to say it, but it you, 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 get, you get numb, unfortunately, because you see it all the time and it's been, it has been heart-wrenching. But I think broadening out from sports as time moves on, we're in a pandemic and I think... Life will move on, and unfortunately, I do think that people will forget about this. People will protest, people will get cleaned up, and you know how people go. They focus on their own lives, and this will not be a topic of discussion until this happens again, unfortunately. I hate to say that. That's just the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, honestly, what I want to see from athletes is actually participating in policy changes, being involved in active government, um, that that's going to be the only way to, to, to fight this thing um, instead of just tweeting in all capital letters. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective. Did you have anything else that you wanted to cover with the regards of you know these these events of this last week? No, I think unfortunately it's a bummer that we don't have actual NBA basketball because I think we would see more of a presence from the NBA mm-hmm. about this, but it's just so hard we don't have any that platforms taken away from them, and really Twitter's social media is really the only way to get their voice out. So that's a bummer where you know we could see interviews you know in post game you know from Steve Kerr or. LeBron or whoever talking about this when there's a big playoff series going on, actually hear their voices as opposed to Twitter, uh, which is, I don't know, only effective for, you know, five seconds when you see it. Um, So, no, I don't think there's any further to say. Um, I think for now, as we'll talk about in a couple of minutes here, um, as the NBA gets going, hopefully we see players not forget about this in July will be about a month removed and hopefully the anger that we see now on Twitter we'll still see when games are going on we're going to see because if we don't see the level of outrage when the NBA season opens then what is their voice on Twitter for so we'll have to wait and see yeah yeah and I I don't think I have anything anything else to add I, I think you um you know, you you said a lot there that uh, that we're all feeling. I think we're all, um, you know, angered, um, flustered right now. So I mean, I I would just say that, you know, our our thoughts and prayers are are with these communities that that are being affected right now, and you know, we're just praying for for peace and um, and resolution here and obviously the the end of of racism which which is just outrageous it's it's 2020 you know yeah for so, sure so segueing <laughs> I mean there's no no easy way to segue off of um, you know a topic like that but uh, the NBA is looking to return so that's what we're gonna talk about next uh, there has been a plan put in place that will most likely be approved uh, within the next week. And so just kind of outline this plan. 22 teams, basically all the teams that are within six games of contention for a playoff spot. So they aren't coming there just to just to play meaningless exhibition games, essentially. They, they do have a chance at contention for the playoffs. Um, these games would be held in Orlando at the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex. Um, we, uh, we've seen or heard of some reported votes, uh, split votes on how many regular season games there should be. Uh, many have voted for just five regular season games or less, just kind of quick tune-up games. Uh, the majority, though, have or um, the, the largest number of votes, I should say, have gone to the idea of having 10-plus games, so basically uh, finishing the regular season. 
Um, they have split votes on when exactly the season should end. Um, so these are all ideas that they are they are trying to finalize, but it seems like the idea of ending the season by October 1st is the most popular so far of all the options, which date back into September or uh, as late as I believe uh, mid August or mid October, excuse me. Um, and we've had uh, sources tell ESPN, this info is, is all coming from ESPN. Um, owners claim that posturing is over and the vote uh, will be to resume. It should be coming uh, this week. So the posturing is over between the owners and Adam Silver's idea has been to start back on July 31st. Uh, so just hearing kind of those bullet points said to you, Justin, do you feel like this is a solid plan? Are there any big suggestions you'd make uh, hearing those out? Um, I think Adam Silver is in a tough position just because anything that he does is going to be high opposition and hurt feelings. I think as we've seen other sports resume, the NBA has no choice but to resume. Um, and that goes from a money situation and from a public relations standpoint. We've seen um, the UFC, we've seen the NHL, NASCAR, other entertainment venues um, really start to begin airing their product. And quite honestly, this this is an opportunity to, re- to really do something radical. I think I've heard a World Cup style type of tournament, a play-in tournament. I would like to see something, you know, a little bit, you know, I don't know different unorthodox as opposed to just resuming the playoffs i think that would be cool one of my my fantasies is to not do the first round of the seven game series <laughs> i hope that doesn't happen uh, but we'll see yeah. i mean we got we got teams with television contracts that's a massive factor they need to fulfill those television contracts and i think there's like five to seven games left in the season and we're talking about teams that are trash that, that have no chance of making the playoffs like my chicago bulls um, they need to fulfill those TV deals. So it's going to be interesting. I think they need the revenue. Um, so we'll see. Uh, I think Ryan Rossillo put it best. He said, no matter what we see, we need to give the players a break. It's not going to be the best basketball. They're not going to be best conditioned. And I think specifically for NBA fans, I know what's going to happen. People are going to lose their minds, split their wigs over the poor product we've seen. But... I think we need to let these players get in the game shape and just finish the season out. I think whatever what's going to happen, it's going to be an asterisk on the title, just how it was when the Spurs won in the lockout season. Um, I think the same thing's going to be the case here. So overall, I just think we just need to get through this season. I think it'll be a good opportunity to experiment. It's, it seems it's kind of a wash. Like why why not take some chances? Why not do something a little bit different and, and see what happens, and then kind of move forward and trying to get you know fans back into the stands for the next season. And that kind of leads into you know when the season should start, which should be maybe Christmas, January. So we'll see. But I'm pretty optimistic and I'm pretty excited what what they're going to do. Yeah, so just to kind of refresh everyone's mind, I know it's it's good for me personally uh, in having looked back at the standings this past week, just kind of a reminder of what was going on in the league. Uh, I mean, for the, the East, we had Milwaukee firmly in the lead and in first place, Toronto in second, Boston in third, fairly close to each other uh, in those top three positions. Well, I'm sorry, position two and three, Milwaukee being firmly ahead of Toronto there. Uh, Four is Miami. The five seed right now would be Indiana if it ended today. Philadelphia at six. Brooklyn at seven. Orlando at eight. And then Washington would be the only other team from the Eastern Conference um, that is within six games of playoff contention. So those would be your top nine from the East. And so with the 22-team format, we would have then 13 teams in the West. We have L.A. in first, uh, L.A. again, the Clippers in second, uh, Denver in third, Utah in fourth, OKC in fifth, Houston in sixth, Dallas in seventh, Memphis at eight, Portland at nine, New Orleans at 10, Sacramento at 11, and um, San Antonio at 12, Phoenix at 13 here. So 
in the current scenario, all of those teams would be involved. So it, it does seem a little bit goofy having an uneven number of teams from each conference. I think it, it makes sense if you think of teams with legitimate playoff contention. Uh, but there it is. We have, as usual, as has been the case in most years over the, the past decade at least, the West teams are bunched very closely together. It's very competitive. We have three teams from the East that would be getting in with uh, losing records at this point. Do you do you feel um, looking at and hearing those, those seedings and knowing what you know about the teams? I mean, we have... We have teams like Milwaukee who have been together for a while and obviously are uh, favorites to get to the finals. Uh, Toronto and Boston, those top three in the East obviously have a lot of continuity. Do you feel like there are like squads like that that during coming through a, a break like this, that continuity is going to help give them an advantage in the playoffs? Or do you kind of think it's, it's up for grabs? I mean, do you see any team getting a, an advantage in coming back now? Uh, we're in uncharted territory. We have NBA players that you would think has, you know, access to you know baskets that hasn't you know taken a shot in a few months. So it's really is a massive question mark. I I personally don't know. I don't have the answer to that question. Um, I would say that we're just gonna see the training camp part of this is probably gonna be the most critical. How long do teams have access to each other? Is going to be the, the, the massive feel of this. And also, it's, it's going to be pretty much like a pickup mentality. I don't think we're going to see too much of kind of a, I don't know, a formed game plan as to attack the rest of the season. It's all out the window. I mean, coaches usually have, they break down a season in certain phases. Now it's kind of, it's all out the window. So I think, honestly, we're going to see, lack of a better term, something we see like in the Rucker or um, the Drew League. Or the the basketball tournament, something is going to be along those lines where teams have an limited amount to really form cohesion and kind of figure it out. I think it could be fun. It could be a complete disaster. But I'm curious. I think it's it's a wash. So I think, as I said before, fans should just you know take a chill pill and just enjoy what we're getting. But I, I don't really know what to expect. Yeah, in my mind, three teams kind of jump out. I mean, first and foremost, the team that was kind of the favorite as the season was getting started, the Clippers. They've had a lot of time for Kawhi and Paul George to rest up, guys that have had past injury concerns. Now, that can also hurt you on the other side. If maybe you're not used, yeah, maybe that, and maybe you're not used to the flow of the game as well, can, can be kind of difficult. But um, I would think those guys being more experienced and, and all-star, I mean, MVP in Kawhi's case, caliber players, I think that would be an advantage to them. There have been rumors that James Harden has gotten in really good shape and lost weight uh, over the past few months, Like, and, and he's been ready for this. I mean, the Rockets' seating kind of makes it more difficult for them. Um, but like you said, there's there's so many variables. I mean, the other team you could think about would be Brooklyn there there'd been those rumors of the outside shot of of KD coming in if this season is starting later so I'll be curious to see what happens with their roster but I think I'm with you in that we don't know exactly what's going to happen I mean it's it's going to be very interesting to see and I think we're both going to be grateful as fans just to have something to watch hopefully it can it can transition into this as smoothly as possible speaking of the Brooklyn Nets we have one more topic here. It's kind of a more fun topic, something that I'm latching onto at least because we don't have a whole lot of news like this to report. There have been trade rumors. If you've been looking on ESPN or Twitter or anywhere with NBA rumors, there have been trade rumors that the Nets would like to pick up Bradley Beal, put him together with KD and, and Kyrie Irving. So I guess I'll just ask you point blank. I mean, assuming, let's just hypothetically say this trade can work. They can put together the pieces, make the contracts match. Do you like the fit of Bradley Beal with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant? Is it too many shooters? What do you think? In theory, this could work. Um, but we've seen Bradley Beal have problems with John Wall and being the star. Because you, could you imagine now with KD and Kyrie Irving? I mean, that's, I feel like, a bigger nightmare scenario than what was happening with the Wizards. I think in theory, from a basketball standpoint, sounds really good. 
I mean, no doubt from a business standpoint, it's going to sell tons of tickets. But from a cohesive standpoint, I think it's going to be a complete disaster. I'll be entertained by it. <laughs> I think this has car wreck written all over it. Um, I think if you're like a beat writer for Brooklyn, I think you're wanting this to happen. You have plenty of juicy material. Um, in terms of them being a title contender, uh, I would say by default, pr- probably. I mean, you know, that makes them one of the top five teams in the East easily. But at the same time, and I don't really trust their cohesion. I think their egos will clash. We've seen evidence of that. So if I'm, if I'm a Brooklyn Nets fan, I'm nervous about this. I'm nervous about KD and Kyrie, to be honest. I think with this play-in tournament, whatever that's going to happen, it would behoove the Brooklyn Nets to participate in this. And maybe if KD is healthy enough, and if Kyrie too, we don't, I don't know about his status, but assuming that they're healthy, this is a good way to like a test run. It's serious basketball. If they lose, who cares? If they win, great. There's really there's no risk. So I would say this is in their best interest if KD is 100% healthy to get him playing in whatever format this is going to be, um, even if they lose. Because, again, there's there's little to um, little consequences as compared to the beginning of the season if he sets out. And if we're in February, uh, maybe even March, the season starts to be all these expectations, all this pressure, and it's going to be whatever, probably 82-game season, I assume, um, of this you know entire circus. As to now, you already have that practice. There's some kind of cohesiveness. You know, whatever this is going to be, there's, there's little risk. So um, for your question for Bradley Beal, I say it's going to be a disaster. Um, <laughs> at the same time, in terms of KD and Kyrie, it's in Brooklyn's best interest to get them participating in this because if they wait, I just the pressure and their egos, I just see them collapsing from it. Yeah, no, no, I don't know if in today's league, I mean, obviously it can work. We've seen it work, and it can help to have three megastars. Like you're not going to say no to – getting another megastar like Bradley Beal. Um, but I I mean, these guys' main skills are shooting. Shooting and handles, of course, in Kyrie Irving's case. But I, I'm with you in that we haven't really seen the Kyrie and KD experiment. We haven't had the opportunity to see them play together yet. And this is just making the team environment a, a more volatile situation uh, overall. So... I think I always like the idea of acquiring more talent akin to the the kind of Daryl Morey ideology. But also, I mean, even using Daryl Morey's Rockets as the example, we've seen where that doesn't always work to just mesh as many stars together as you possibly can. So I'm with you. I think you should be concerned and maybe you should just keep your team deeper and rely on a guy as mega talented as Kevin Durant is to head your team and lead you guys to victory. But again, I, I see, you know, you see that, um, that tempting acquisition of, of Bradley Beal. And if the offer is there and if, if the wizards are willing to oblige, I mean, I think it's, it's inevitably going to happen, but I don't really have a good sense of how, serious this rumor is so it may be that this gets squashed um well before basketball comes back for us justin anything else to cover for this week no uh that's it uh thanks for joining in us and again uh stay tuned for an interview with jeff grammer again he is the journalist for the albuquerque journal here in albuquerque new mexico um he has a great take and variety of thoughts on many topics so uh, stay tuned for that Take care, you guys. Be safe out there. Now we have the pleasure in welcoming Albuquerque Journal staff writer Jeff Grammer onto the podcast. Um, thanks, Jeff, for joining us, and we apologize for all the technical difficulties. No, nah, we're good, man. We're good. I'm glad to be on. So, um, Jeff, I want to kind of get your thoughts on what's been really holding the sports world's attention for the past, I would say, month or so, and that's been the last dance on the ESPN documentary. And since really the New Mexico community, which we all live in, has kind of a personal connection with that team, considering Luke Longley was on there, our former New Mexico Lobo. I just want to get your thoughts on the documentary, the reception, and how do you think um, it really resonated within maybe the the New Mexico community? I I do think that, well, first of all, I I loved it. I enjoyed it. I 
of all 10 episodes um, have, I wouldn't say problems with it, but I do think it's worth noting a couple of the issues with it, um, especially since the documentary has now concluded and, and some of the players have come out and, you know, Scotty Pippen has talked about, he's pretty upset about it. Um, I know Horace Grant certainly wished uh, he had more to say in the documentary because he doesn't feel he was portrayed accurately. Um, as far as the New Mexico angle goes, Luke Longley, who in his own book, Running with the Bulls back in uh, however many years ago that was, um, wrote how, how much he and Michael Jordan didn't really get along. And as we know here in New Mexico, Luke wasn't a part of the documentary. Um, that said, it, it was a great documentary. It, it was a it was a Jordan-driven documentary, and that doesn't make it inaccurate, but it does make it one guy's version of the story as opposed to maybe the complete version of the story. But it was great, man. It was, it was fascinating to me, obviously. Um, it came at a good time for a 10 part documentary. I know the, like, you know, a few years back that OJ documentary came out and it was a fantastic documentary as well and was in several parts, but didn't get as much viewership because when sports are going on, the sports world isn't going to sit there and, uh, you know, be so starved for something to watch as they were with this documentary. But it was great, man. It was a good documentary. I talked to Mike Brown yesterday, the, uh, the assistant coach for the Golden State Warriors, uh, Elijah Brown's dad, he used to be a Lobo. Um, who, who's coach LeBron and he's coach Kobe and he was the head coach of the Lakers in Cleveland and, and he's loving it. He said he didn't watch a single one of them because he is very, um, you know, very, very much the type that needs to watch them kind of all in a row or at least several of them in a row. He, he didn't want to have to wait week by week, so he avoided it while it was airing in real time, um, like we were all watching week to week. And uh, he's watching all 10 of them now and he, he said he started just like two days ago. And he was through episode eight in, in the, the first two days. So he's um, he's got two more to go, but he, he's enjoying it. And, and he uh, it was cool talking to him because he, he worked briefly with Jordan um, and the Wizards as an assistant coach. And, and when, when uh, Michael Jordan had uh, whatever stake he had before he returned to playing, whatever he was actually doing with the Wizards at the time, um, Mike Brown worked there. And so talking with him yesterday about that was pretty cool. And uh, look, it, it was a good documentary. I, I think it revisited a lot of um, a lot of stuff people that were really big time basketball fans at that time probably knew parts of um, we didn't know as much about a lot of this stuff but I do, I do think it's, uh, it's a, it was a great documentary and the access was fantastic um, but it was a it was a Jordan centric documentary and I, I do think him in the documentary saying he never said he wouldn't play with with Isaiah Thomas on the dream team. Um, or that he wouldn't play if Isaiah was on the team. And then since then it came out, the recordings came out that, that Jordan actually did tell them he wouldn't play. Stuff like that just kind of makes us maybe somewhere in the back of your mind you need to be reminded sometimes that when, when one person does have control of the documentary, take that into account. That said, I think it showed an awful lot. So I, I think Michael Jordan um, probably is going to come out looking great after all this. I think his legacy um, certainly did not take a hit. Um, I, I think uh, I think it is worth remembering that he had he had final say in a lot of that. So, yeah, totally agree. Um, and I think you know Justin and I have have voiced uh, very similar opinions uh, in in large part to some of the things that you just said. And it's cool to hear that about uh, Mike Brown and and someone deeply rooted in the NBA community, kind of giving the thumbs up to that documentary. Um, so the other thing that obviously has has been on everyone's mind uh, over the past few months is is the pandemic we've been going through. Um, Jeff, do you have a, a sense as to what things are going to look like um, when when the fall comes down? Uh, I know here in New Mexico, I, my son is going to be starting school this year, and they are talking about opening up the schools. Do you see? Uh, any positive indications for college athletics? Yeah, I, I mean, I do. I'm, I'm, I've kind of turned the page on doubting if there will be a season, at least football related. I, I do believe there will be a season. Um, you know, not 100. If I'm, you know, betting, I'm not putting the house down on it. But you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident now that there will be a season of some sort. Um, I will say that this past week, and and I, I forget what cabinet position it was but a cabinet secretary from the governor's office um met with uh you know john traub and the people of albuquerque isotopes um i believe i don't know if mario mocha the ad from new mexico state was on a conference call or not but he wasn't up in albuquerque 
but I do know Eddie. I talked to Eddie Nunez, the athletic director at UNM. And um, I, anyway, I forget who all was in there, but it was a it was a meeting with people who have large venue events. Obviously, sporting events is the main one there, but also some concert people with some interest in in uh, concert scene and stuff like that. And if you remember in March when this first started and, and nobody really knew what to do with all this, the, the New Mexico Activities Association fought pretty hard to continue their basketball tournament and, and complete it, and they did. And they were allowed for the last two or three days 100 people in the pit. Um, 100, the 100 number initially was maybe we understood that you kind of had to come up with some number. You had to limit it if you were going to allow the event to happen at all. There needed to be a limit at that point, and we didn't know why, um, or not we didn't know why. We didn't know what that number should be or shouldn't be or, or what. But it sounded like maybe the governor's office right now was was thinking, okay, as we move forward, let's for now still work with that 100 people number um, in an event. No more than 100 people in any venue at a time. The, the problem with that is maybe that works for, for a restaurant or, or even a large, you know, larger space like a casino or something like that. But there's no reason that 100 should be the limit on a football stadium with at least 30,000 people. You should have some sort of percentage basis as opposed to just one arbitrary number. And I think that's what they discussed a lot this past week because if the number is 100, as it was for the basketball tournament, and each team was limited to, I think, 20, 20 players and staff and trainers and coaches and all that, and you're already up to, to 40 or 50, I might have been 25 that each team is allowed, you're, you're eating up numbers pretty quickly. And in football, each sideline, um, Eddie said right. last year their sideline pass had 120 for each sideline, <laughs> and you're not going to have a football game if they keep the number at 100. But there's really not a reason to keep it at 100. Where whatever the science is, if you believe it's safe enough to have a contact sport, and it sounds like they're okay with that, you you then need to look at your surroundings. And University Stadium, or I'm sorry, Dreamstyle Stadium, and down in Las Cruces, the Aggie Memorial Stadium, the 100 person capacity on that there's not really a reason for it um science-based or, or pandemic-based you, you can have social distancing social distancing and have probably more like a percentage base if the seat if the stadium seats thirty thousand, then you could probably have i don't know what the number is let's just say 1000 as opposed to 100 mm-hmm. but if you don't that 100 number you're not going to have football so i do think that there's still a lot of adjusting that's going to happen because i do think there will be football but i don't think it'll be you know I don't think fans are probably going to be a big part of the, the scenario. I do think that the governor's office in the state, and this is for the whole country, really, states are going to make allowances for media to be there because they don't want their citizens going to these stadiums necessarily. So they're going to make sure that media is allowed to be there to cover it. Obviously, the live TV and the, the recording of video for, so fans can watch it and not feel bad about not going. But you're still going to have to have security at the gates so fans don't try and sneak in to watch a football game. And you can imagine that in some bigger states, if they play a football game, let's just throw the scenario of Alabama out there. Can you imagine if they tried to have an Alabama football game with no fans? Those <laughs> people trying to break in and break in through the gates. So you're going to have to have some of that number, whatever the number is, the capacity. You still have to have security, even though there aren't fans there, because you're trying to keep them out. So it's a it's a weird kind of scenario right now where you got to come up with all these these uh, working numbers and these these um, plans for something that's never happened before and, and may never happen again. So um, I do know Eddie and Mario, the two athletic directors of the two FBS programs in the state. I haven't talked to Highlands or Eastern or Western yet, but um, I know Eddie and Mario, the two athletic directors, are basically every day coming up with plans on how to bring their student athletes back and how to turn off the water fountains and give them all water bottles and not let them in locker rooms yet and, and what they need to do with all that stuff and they're they're pretty busy with this right now, even though there's no sports going on. They've been pretty busy. Yeah, and I guess the the good news is we have a couple of months before we kind of get rolling with college football, at least. Um, so it, sound, it sounds like you're pretty positive that this is coming back and, and they are going to likely figure something out that's going to work. I, I am. Um, I would say I will note this. College basketball, I, from a business standpoint, I don't believe that they're going to not have another NCAA tournament because the billion-dollar CBS contract for March Madness, the, the multi-billion-dollar contract, that's how the NCAA gets you know millions every year. Um, mm-hmm. And this year, UNM and NMSU both got cut. You know, NMSU I think was seven hundred fifty thousand that they were expecting, which is a huge amount of money down for the Aggies, mm-hmm. and about one point million for UNM. 
that money didn't come in. And, you know, these are two schools trying to balance budgets. If you look at the larger schools, you're talking three or four million that didn't come in. Yeah. That's a lot of money for schools across yeah. the country. From a business standpoint, I don't see them canceling it again. But I will say the second wave or, or the winter months where the flu season hits and they there's sort of some predictions right now of, of coronavirus hitting again come November, December, January, right when basketball is, it, it's going to be I'm, – I'm not convinced yet that basketball won't be affected. Maybe they don't start it until January. Maybe they push it all the way back so it isn't a March madness next year, but maybe it's a May madness. And they still have the season, but I, I can see them pushing it back. If you look at the University of Indiana, for example – they actually have already come up with their schedule, their class schedule for next year and or for the coming school year. And it ends in like mid-November and they don't start again until February. So mm-hmm. you're actually talking in the month of January and December plus parts of November and February where no students are on campus. If you're just playing a regular basketball season that whole time, it's not the usual winter break. And they're doing that because they believe they don't want their students on campus during those months when they think the the uh, coronavirus is going to be at a peak again and kind of coming back and making another wave. So if that's the safety precaution universities are making, there could be the same kind of precautions come basketball season when uh, when usually you're playing November and December. And if all these campuses don't want their students on campus, it's kind of hard to argue that it's okay for them to be in stadiums or arenas. Do you think it's smart for specifically the University of New Mexico to even participate in basketball, considering that they might be operating under a loss just from the fact that there might be massive social distancing and not um, the ability to have the typical capacity of fans? I mean, you mentioned everything that goes into a sporting event. Um, Is it maybe wise just to shelf the season overall, or is this a little better than nothing? Uh, I'd go with better than nothing. Um, there are some some um, kind of break-even points that, uh, financially speaking, that they're going to have to come up with. Is is it costing us too much? Is it hurting us? And you know this or that. I can tell you, if they don't participate, they won't get any of their TV money. So I do think like UNM will play just for TV money, and that most of the money comes from the football part of things. But their TV contract is actually the Mountain West TV contract covers football and basketball and it's you can't really specifically say 80 percent of this money is for football and 20 percent is for basketball because the contract says we're going to have 53 basketball games and 32 football games those aren't the accurate numbers i'm just throwing that out there there they the contract doesn't really say we're giving you x dollars for this game and x dollars for that game it's an entire thing so if you don't participate even in the basketball side of things you don't get any of the tv money and so I don't think UNM can afford to do that. I will say NMSU does not have a TV contract, so they might be at a different in a different place with that. But they've also been a lot more kind of um, bold in, in returning to campus and kind of trying to get ahead of getting people back. And, and they're hoping to have players start coming back this coming week if they get their administration to approve their return plan, um, which I don't – I talked to Mario, I think, Friday morning, and I, I don't think he had gotten the word back yet if they approved the plan – but assuming they approve the plan, which has already been okayed by a, a virologist that they have on campus there down at New Mexico State, they will actually be returning football players this week to campus. So they, they I don't think, want to back off down at New Mexico State. And I know UNM doesn't want to back off with the season either. Um, but, yeah, they're definitely going to be taking a loss, both of them. Um, if you at least compare what they make most years, they won't be making that this year. How has it been for you as a journalist, um, considering there has been no sports, um, just you being a, a writer? Um, how has it been for you from th- the time that this pandemic started to now just covering sports? Because you have t- having to develop content yourself. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, I mean, the really easy answer um, is kind of bored, just like everyone else. Um, having to do a lot of... Uh, lengthy interviews about things like um, finances and contracts and force majeure clauses, which, you know, I never would have known really much about prior. Um, but in, in all these contracts, you know, if, if, a, if an act of God prevents UNM football from playing at USC this year, it costs UNM football a million dollars. So they, they obviously want to play that game, <laughs> you, you would think. So um, things like that, there's, there's all these clauses and contracts that I've been reading. And if, if coronavirus is deemed a, a you know an act of God or a natural disaster, um, then then UNM doesn't make budget this year because they're not going to play 
their two big money games and uh, at Mississippi State is one of them where Mike Leach is now the head coach and actually the defensive coordinator, Zach Arnett, was a, was a former Lobo and a Requeva High School graduate. Um, so, you know, those two games where, where UNM this year is counting on making like $2 million for football just to play the game, and NMSU has two of those as well, but it's like two and a half million. Um, reading contracts and stuff like that is, is sort of what I've been having to do a lot more of than I'd like. I wish there were some ice coach games to go cover, and I wish there were some off-season basketball practices that I could go to because there's a whole roster of new Lobos that I, I haven't seen half of them play before. You know, I can look at videos like anybody else, but what I really like doing is getting in the gym and sitting next to one of the coaches or the assistant coaches and watching the guy play and, and kind of picking their brain as I'm watching them play, you know, before me as opposed to in a, on a YouTube video. So Jeff, uh, transitioning into the Lobos, I mean, it's it's no secret to any of our listeners that Justin and I both went to UNM. We're we're huge UNM basketball fans, um, yeah. and and you've covered right, from from the time you started covering at at Albuquerque Journal, from what I understand, um, till present day. I mean, has been three. Uh, very interesting and successful in, in many ways, coaching regimes at UNM. Um, I just kind of wanted to pick your brain, generally speaking. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that we as, as UNM fans feel and, and certainly hear about coaching regimes and, and how they operate and, and run. And with you being a, a reporter uh, with the Albuquerque Journal, um, are there palpable differences that you can you can feel between the coaching regimes um, yeah. that have been through? I mean, ta- speaking, of course, about Coach Alford, Coach Neal, and Coach Ware. So so Steve was, um, you know, I, I covered one of the most successful, his last year was one of the most successful years in mobile basketball history. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't a lot of controversy. I didn't have a lot of problems with Steve. I, I liked his family a lot more than I, I liked him, frankly, but I didn't have any major problems with him. He doesn't have the best um, reputation nationwide with, with dealing with media and stuff like that. But, you know, I got to know his dad really well, actually. I talked with his dad a lot. Both his sons were playing high school um, here growing up in, in Albuquerque. I knew at that time Bryce was a senior in high school and, and Corey was a walk-on on the team. And then, you know, I got to know his wife and I got to know his kids and, and all that kind of stuff. I liked the Alfred regime, but I also didn't cover any sort of controversy. I didn't have to butt heads with Steve very often. Um, in fact, the one time Steve and I really went at it um, was probably after the Harvard loss when I was asking him about some of the criticism the program was taking at the time. And, and he kind of, you know, he, I, was, I was the guy he, he really targeted his frustrations at, I think, at a mm. postseason press conference, which is fine. I, I say this to people all the time. When coaches get mad at me, that, that you know, I, I have no problem with it because I would hate after every whatever your job is just you know this is different scenarios for different people with their jobs but their job has you know weeks and weeks and and tons of practices and all this stuff but what most people see of their job is is the game so after that game after you have like 30 times a year this kind of litmus test where people either love you or hate you or think you're good at your job or think you're horrible at your job you know, your high moments, your low moments, you might have just screwed up at your job in front of thousands of people. And the first person you see after every game asking like, hey, why did you screw up, you know, screw up your job there <laughs> is me. So I, I get that the coaches aren't always going to be friendly with me. And I'm fine with that because I would hate that after a stupid story or another typo in one of my, my lead paragraphs or something like that. Like, I would hate to see the same person every time say, hey, why did that happen? most of the time you just want to say, well, you saw why it happened. You know, we didn't hit any shots or because I messed this up or something like that. So I don't ever take it personal when the coaches take stuff out on me. Um, I will say Steve didn't do that that often with me, but he was a very controlling CEO type. And he had a, he had nobody at UNM, um, good or bad, uh, that really questioned him. He ran the show. He was in charge. I think when he handed the reins off and went over to UCLA and handed the reins off to Craig, um, Craig, who had been kind of good cop to Steve's bad cop sometimes, Craig was always, Noodles was the guy that would go put his arm around the player and say, look, yeah, I know Steve's mad at you right now, but, you know, let's, let's work on this. Let's do this. You're, you're okay. You're good. Um, when he became the head coach, he, he shifted roles and got so defensive from day one um, because a, a large part of it had to do with people questioning why Cullen was on the team and why Cullen was getting so many minutes as a point guard 
And I really think that things might have been entirely different with Noodles and his old regime had Colin come in year two or year three, as opposed to from day one, people were asking him, why are you playing this, you know, this freshman, your son? Why are you playing him so many minutes? And he got so defensive that he kind of took on this real defensive demeanor all four years he was the head coach. And and it, it didn't it didn't work out for him, obviously. By the end, he burned a lot of bridges. He got mad at a lot of people. Um, but that first team he had was obviously really good. Now, Tony left and went to the NBA, Tony Snell. But you still have Kendall, Alex Kirk, um, Cameron Barristow, and Hugh Greenwood, and, and Deshaun Delaney came on, which is a pretty serviceable um, pickup that offseason to, to replace Tony Snell. Um, and then Paul comes along, and, and the, the reality is that people need to remember is Steve has agreed to a contract um, back in 2013 that would have paid like a 1.5 million. I mean, that it was structured in a way that's hard to pinpoint exactly what he would have made, but he was probably going to make about 1.5 million. It was all bonuses, and, and if he hit this benchmark, he'd get this much more money and that stuff. But he he was going to make about 1.5 million. Then Steve or then Craig comes along. He gets paid 750 his first year. As a first-time head coach, that bumps up after year one to 950. By the time Craig Neal was fired, UNM was going through some financial stuff. They couldn't afford, you know, they hired a 39-year-old coach who had one-year experience in the WAC. And and I like Paul. Um, Paul and I have been, you know, friends, and we talked for years um, before I ever even considered he might be the local coach one day. I talked to him quite a bit down at New Mexico State. But they hired him at 600000 and and the, the market wasn't exactly um, – there, there wasn't a lot of great options at the time that UNM could afford. And I don't think fans always think about that. The, the financial reality for UNM basketball over the last several years isn't what it once was. There, there's just not as much money um, going on. And so to judge them by the same standard, even by the Craig Neal standard or the, definitely the Steve Alford standard, is probably a little unfair to the current program because they're paying their assistant coaches less. They're not chartering as many flights. They're not spending as much on recruiting, and they're paying their head coach significantly less. That said, I I do think that this coming year and year four, if Paul can get them to return to what they were doing in year one when they had this us-against-the-world, chip-on-the-shoulder mentality, I think they can be okay. Um, Back-to-back disappointing seasons based on the talent and the expectations, I think kind of have them in that in that realm where they're like, okay, nobody's going to expect it from us this year. The the guys that everyone thought were the stars um, and, and were very talented. I'm not taking that away from them, but you know, this was supposed to be the year where a good point guard and, and JJ Caldwell came along and he had another guard and Jaquan Lyle that was supposed to be really good. And Carlton Bragg was supposed to be really good. And Vance Jackson in, in his third year with the program was supposed to be really good. And I, I think that this past year when it fell flat, I think nobody around the Mountain West is probably going to expect much from the Lobos. But I will say this, if they get back to the us against the world and, and let's, let's go pick fights with everybody and nobody believes in us kind of mentality, they, they could be pretty good again. And I know they're going to run again. I know they're going to press again. And uh, I do think they have the pieces to get back to what they were in year one. Now, if they do that, um, that's another question. You know, if they, if they can actually make that happen. Um, maybe the best thing going for them is the, the entire Mountain West is losing so much talent and so many scoring options. And mm. th- there's not a team in the league that's not losing a significant amount of talent. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, that was that was a great summation of all those coaching regimes. Do you get the sense that um, because of events that happened, I mean, we all know like off the court events uh, really, <laughs> to put it lightly, affected the Lobo season. Uh, do you get the sense that there's going to be like a, a tightening of the reins or maybe like kind of a, a more, I don't know, dictator-like mentality, like akin to Steve Alford from Paul going into this season? Yeah. And I, I think there's some context that needs to be kind of given with that. I think Paul um, has, he's been pretty open about he thinks coaches at the college level overcoach. He thinks they call too many timeouts, and that drives some fans crazy during games. He thinks coaches probably drop too many plays. Um, he would rather go with the you know a more Golden State Warriors kind of approach where they're open and free and, and not running a lot of set plays um, in their offense. And, and it's kind of hard to question whether or not they're running a pretty good offense with the Warriors because you know they do have the talent, obviously, but. He, he kind of lets them run these sets as opposed to these specific plays. He doesn't like coaches getting in the way because he thinks that the, if you have more talent, if, if your guys are better, 
just let them go beat the other team then instead of getting in their way and calling all these timeouts and stopping the action and making them think. So I think he got away from really hard discipline this past year because he sort of let them have this, I'm going to let the team run itself mentality because he thought and he trusted that he had he had a bunch of 24-year-old players and 22 and 23-year-olds. These weren't like 17, 18-year-olds. We always say that about college teams, like, oh, don't trust any of these 18, 19-year-old kids to, to run the show. Or he had a fifth year, Jaquan Wiles. He was 24 years old. He actually went to prep school. So he was, you know, really a, a sixth-year guy, if you want to look at it that way. Um, Carlton Bragg was a fifth-year guy. He had Jake, you know, even J.J. Caldwell um, was at Texas A&M two years and then out of basketball for a year. He was in his fourth year of college, and Vance Jackson was in his fourth year of college. He let, and regrettably so at this point, but he let his team have way more power this year than he had before, and, and way more power than Steve Alford would ever let his players have. And and I do think in hindsight he regrets it. I, I know in hindsight he, he regrets letting them run the show as much as he did because even when you do step in to try and pull the reins in a little bit, and, and the coaching staff did at times this year try and do that, but once you do that and the cat's already out of the bag, it's kind of hard in season to bring that back in. And um, I do think from the start this coming year, there's not a Jaquan Lyle on the team that's running the show, and there's not a specific star. There's not one or two guys that everybody else is going to look to, like Carlton and Jaquan, basically, um, to be the stars. This year, everybody's fighting for playing time again. This year, everybody's kind of fighting to be that alpha dog, and that's sort of what you had in year one, where Anthony Mathis ended up being a good scorer, but if you remember, he was trying to transfer after the Craig Neal regime, and nobody offered him a scholarship. So he ended up staying with UNM because he hadn't played for two years, basically, under Craig Neal. And Joe Furstinger became a star when nobody really saw that coming. Maybe Sam Logwood was the only guy on that first-year roster that people looked to as saying, okay, he's probably the best player on the team going into the season. And by the end, you had Anthony Jackson had a great season. Joe Furstinger became a very good Lobo that season, very good college player that season, and those kind of things. I think you have more of that this year. You have um, a whole list of players, and if you tell me now who's the star of the Lobos going into next year, I, I, I don't think I could answer that because returning starter is, uh, you know, Zane Martin and McQuatch Malawatch. I don't know for sure that I'd say either one of them are going to be the star of next year's team. They'll both be very key pieces, um, but I, I do think they have the opportunity for everybody on the roster to kind of fight for playing time, and that'll be interesting to see because that's what year one was like. Well, Jeff, we uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate your time. Appreciate your analysis. Um, that was an awesome preview of what yeah, we can expect awesome. <laughs> um, if things resume um, in the fall. Um, just stay safe. We appreciate your time and enjoy the summer. I promise you guys have me on again. I'll let you guys actually talk a little more next time. I promise. Oh, we appreciate <laughs> it, man. That was that was awesome insight. Jeff, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Nah, just Keep reading the journal when you can. Keep reading me on Twitter when you can. I, I post all my links there. So at Jeff Grammer, it is Jeff with the G, G-E-O-F-F, and Grammar is with an E-R at the end. So at Jeff Grammer on Twitter, I, I put most of my stuff up there, and you can read what I'm writing for the journal uh, by following me on Twitter. Yeah, and if you're in Albuquerque and on Twitter and not following Jeff, or you need to get with it. He's he's fantastic on Twitter. Great follow. I, I, I'm I on there a lot. I don't know if I'm a fantastic follow. <laughs> I sure do get a, I should say a lot, that's for sure. Well, we appreciate you, Jeff. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you too, man.